Good morning, church family. I hope you had a wonderful week. Dads, I hope you had an amazing Father's Day. I did. It was really awesome. I also want to thank my son, Joan, for the wonderful Father's Day message. It was encouraging, convicting, and challenging. Thank you, son. I love you. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. That's uh, today's text, James 5, 13 through 18. We're now in part 16 of our series, Faith in Action. Again, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. I want to begin the message with a question. When you're going to be trained on something, whether it's regarding a business, a hobby, a sport, or a ministry, don't you want to be trained by one of the best? So who next to Jesus himself do you want as your teacher regarding prayer? Well, it would be his half-brother James, right? The ancient historian Eusebius testified regarding James. His knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. Kent Hughes said this, just like a laborer's hands testified to his occupation or a runner's feet to his training, James' callous knees testified to a life of serious prayer. So, so we would be wise to listen up to what James has to say regarding prayer. You see, he walked his talk on his knees. I'm going to say it again. I love that. He walked his talk on his knees. The title of my message today is On Our Knees. Say that, On Our Knees. While here in the text, James presents us with one of the most powerful uh, resources at our disposal, which is prayer. Say, say prayer. It's a resource that can be applied to any trial or, or any circumstance that we as Christians can ever face. It's a resource that has the power, say power, to transform us from the inside out and empower us to do whatever it is that God has called us to do. It's a resource that moves the hand of God to transform our circumstances, to supply our needs, to lift up our spirits, to change us and even change the people around us. Now, if you're saved, say amen. This resource, prayer, say prayer, is our highest and greatest privilege and the most powerful resource God has ever entrusted to us. It is one of our greatest responsibilities. So that being said, how, how is your prayer life? Think about that. How is your prayer life? Is it hot or is it cold? You know, too often our petitions fit the description of prayer given by Thomas Brooks who said, cold prayers are as arrows without heads, as swords without edges, as birds without wings. They pierce not, they cut not, they fly not up to heaven. Cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Now, as we go through the text, you will notice that the word prayer is used seven times, say prayer, used seven times in this passage. Now, first we're going to look at the exhortation to prayer, there's three points there. And then the example of prayer, there's four points there. So if you're ready, say, say yes. Here we go. The exhortation to prayer, number one, is this. Pray when I'm suffering. Write that down. Pray when I'm suffering. And look at verse 13a with me. And James writes this. Is any one of you in trouble? Other translations say, is any one of you afflicted? or suffering. And then James says, he should pray. Say pray. In the Greek, the word trouble is kakopakia. Kakopakia. It's spelled K-A-K-O-P-A-Q-E-I-A. Again, K-A-K-O-P-A-Q-E-I-A. Koko 
pakia. And it literally means to be under pressure. It means tension. It means to be distressed. In 2 Timothy 2.9, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, it's called suffering. It's called hardship. It's, uh, it's external circumstances that cause internal distress. It's when our, when our hearts are breaking. It's when we're sinking, sinking emotionally. It's when life becomes difficult and hard. The present tense of the verb suggests persistence in suffering. This literally has the idea of suffering evil blows from the outside world. So James is not talking about having a bad day. Uh, though we should pray when our day is not going so well, he's pointing to the excuse me. He's pointing to some enduring affliction uh, that could be brought on by relationships, by the economy, uh, by by persecution, by family situations, by physical ailments and oppression. Now, now, if we're honest here, if we're honest here in in, t- in our times of suffering, there is that temptation to question God, to question God's goodness. And, and we're tempted to complain. And instead of trusting him and seeking his face in prayer, we panic and we become fearful. Hey, listen now, when life gets hard, when life is throwing its punches at you, when life gets out of control, pray. We need to pray. In, in your troubles, in, in your affliction, in, in your suffering, pray. That's what James is saying. He's saying pray in those times. He doesn't say get over it. He doesn't say knock it off. He doesn't say confess positive things and walk around in perfect health. No, he says pray. Pray. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Listen now. There is no such thing as painless Christianity. I'm going I'm to say it again. There is no such thing as painless Christianity. If we have a pulse, if we have a pulse, there are going to be seasons of suffering in our lives. Now, some of it we bring on ourselves, some of it because of rebellion, such as Jonah, some of it uh, because God has allowed it in our lives, such as Job. Now, listen, Job suffered not because of his faithlessness, but because of his faithfulness. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I want you to hear me, okay? Hear me. When we pray for God to deliver us from our suffering, he may do that and he may not. He may do that and he may not. Now, I want you to follow me here. God may not deliver us out of it. God may not deliver us out of it, but through it. Got it? But through it. And what comes to mind is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul had a thorn on his side, and he prayed to God three times to remove that thorn. And God said, no, no, no. God said, no, three times. But in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 8, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient. Love that. My grace is sufficient. Now, let's notice, notice verse 13b. James says, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. I love that. I'm going to say that again, okay? Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, what I love about James is James knows that life is a series of ups and downs, excuse me, ups and downs, highs and lows, mountains and valleys. And listen, when, when you're down, pray. When you're happy, rejoice. It is said that Luther, when he heard any bad news, used to say, Come, let us sing a psalm in spite the devil. That's awesome. I love that. Now, now let me give you two ways to deal with life's problems. Okay, two ways. Here we go. Prayer 
and praise. Say that, prayer and praise. Two ways, prayer and praise. In fact, the mature Christian knows how to sing in times of suffering. And what comes to mind is Paul and Silas. Remember in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 22, I'm going to read to you what it says. It says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their their feet in the stocks. This is what it says in verse 25. About midnight, say midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So they weren't blaming God. Uh, They weren't angry at God or, or pouting. They were praying and praising God. Gosh, I love it. That's awesome. Now, were they in pain? Yes. Were they scared? Yes. Were they uncomfortable and miserable? Yes. Still, they didn't allow their circumstances to defeat them. They were praying, and then they were filled with praise. They began to sing songs of praise to God. Now, listen. Praise to God. Got to get this. Praise to God recalls us to himself. I'm going to say it again. Praise to God recalls us to himself. Our prayers should overflow into praise. Write these down. Write these scriptures down. Psalm verse 40, excuse me, Psalm chapter 40, verse 3. Psalm chapter 40, verse 3 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5b. Psalm 30, verse 5b says, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You gotta love that, right? Psalm chapter 30, verses 11 through 12. Psalm 30, verses 11 through 12 says, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4 says, A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, what's the lesson? Here's a lesson. God balances our lives and gives us hours of suffering and days of singing. I'm going to say it again. God balances our lives and gives us hours of suffering and days of singing. Alec Mortlier said this, our whole life should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. Well, that's exactly what James is saying in our text. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived in communion with God, the good and the bad. And that communion is to be manifested, listen now, manifested in prayer. Now, we all know that life is unpredictable, right? We know that life is so unpredictable, unpredictable, but we must recognize that there is one constant factor in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ himself. I want you to follow me here. Our circumstances change, our emotions change, our attitudes change, and people change. But one thing that never changes is our constant Savior, Jesus Christ. Someone say amen. 
Now get this. Stability in our life comes from relating everything to Jesus. To Jesus. Hey, relate everything to Jesus because he's the one who doesn't change. Hebrews chapter 13, write that down. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't you love that? So pray when I'm suffering, number two. Number two is pray when I'm sick. Pray when I'm sick. Look at verse 14a, verse 14a with me. Is any one of you sick? He should call, got to get this, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him. Now notice James, what James does. James places the responsibility on the sick person for communicating the need for prayer. The sick person should call on the elders to his or her side for the purpose of intercession. So this is it. The sick person needs to take the initiative. That's what James is saying. Now we're talking about a person with a life-threatening illness. Okay, you don't call the elders if you stub your toe. Okay, you don't call them if you stub your toe, if you hit your elbow. You don't do that. Okay, it's got to be a life-threatening illness. Now notice, notice the elders, it says, are to pray over the sick person, right? James doesn't say, ask for some... Sp- Ask for someone specifically with the gift of healing. He doesn't say uh, uh, to men, he doesn't even mention to find a faith healer or a faith healing service, but to simply call the leaders, the elders of the church. Look at verse 14b. Anointing him or her with oil. Say oil. Now I want to say a few things associated with the use of oil in this setting. First of all, in biblical times, oil was believed to possess some values as medicine. It was for medicinal use. Uh, so they would rub this oil all over themselves. Second, the oil was often a symbol of the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit and God's written word. Now listen, the oil, you got to get this, the oil has no power in itself. I'm going to say it again. The oil has no power, has no power in itself. If you got it, say got it. It's used, this oil is used to display a trust in the power and the presence of God who is the only one who can deliver us and heal us. So follow me here. The power of healing does not lie in the, does not lie, excuse me, in the prayer itself, but in the one who is petitioned. One more thing. Oil was often used in the Old Testament settings for both kings and priests in setting them apart to God. When David was set apart as king, Samuel anointed him with what? With oil. You see, the oil implied that the person anointed was was consecrated, set apart for whatever God had purposed for them to do. So so in the same way, got to get this now, in the same way, it is likely that anointing a sick person with oil during the time of prayer indicates outwardly that both the elders and the sick are set apart to God for His work in their lives. The oil may indicate their submission to the will of God, whether in healing or not healing. Got it? Look at verse 14c. In the name of the Lord. Okay, underline that, highlight that, circle that. In the name of the Lord, which is the most important part of this verse. The word name refers to God's essence. The word name refers to God's essence. Listen, 
and I got to say this, all ministries, all ministries must be consistent with the essence of God's character. I'm going to say it again. All ministries must be consistent with the essence of God's character. I just have to say that. So, so follow me here. To pray in the name of the Lord implies that the elders, I love this, that the elders are sensitive and submissive to, to, to God's sovereign will and purposes. You see, friends, it's to pray in concert with his will. Now, now get this, get this. God is a healer, not man. Got it? God is a healer, not man. All healing is based on God's character and sovereign will. So prayer is not a magic formula, but listen, but verbal communication with the sovereign living God. And it is, it is God who will answer our prayers in his way, in his time, and above all, in his will. Look at verse 15a with me, verse 15a. And the prayer offered in faith, got to get that. And the prayer offered in faith, underline that, in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. So the best approach, got to get this, the best approach in praying for the sick is to pray with humble confidence, humble confidence that they will be healed. Unless, unless God clearly and powerful, powerfully makes it clear that this is not his will. So what we do is we pray and simply leave the matter to God. You see, all prayers, say all prayers, are subject to God's will. Got it? Now look at the text. The prayer offered in faith. Say that. The prayer offered in faith is found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, where it says, this is the confidence. Gosh, I love this. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask, listen now, that if we ask anything according to his, what? Will, he hears us. According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that what we have, what we, we know that we have what we asked of him. So it's got to be according to his Will. Now listen, God sometimes glorifies his name through the full restoration and healing of those who are sick, and sometimes he glorifies himself or his name while not healing but sustaining the sick person. So if you're saved, say amen. Listen, God doesn't guarantee that his will is always for healing. But he does, he does teach that he, will, that he will respond to the prayers of his people when they pray, listen now, when they pray with full trust and confidence in him. Now, now before I, I go on, I, I want to point out several attitudes about healing because there's a lot of different divisions about healing. Uh, there's the confessionalist, confessionalist, and they say that it's always God's will uh, that every believer be healed. Well, the problem with that, friends, is that if every believer got healed, then no Christians would die. They also demand that God is going to heal. Well, the problem is this. The problem is this attitude makes God a genie. They also believe that it's not God's will that we Christians suffer. Well, 1 Peter 4.19, 1 Peter 4.19 says, So then those who suffer according to God's will, do you get that? 
should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You also have the cessationalists and dispensationalists, and these are the groups who say that the gifts of healing were only for the New Testament times and they no longer exist. Some even go as far to say that God no longer heals today. Well, the problem with that is Hebrews 13.8. Remember this? Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then you have the rationalists. The rationalists say that it's all in your mind. That's Christian science. And finally, you have the realists. The realists. James is a realist. I love that. He's a realist. And this is where I stand on healing. The realist recognizes two facts. Fact number one is God still heals. God still heals. Fact number two is not everyone gets healed. Now, why doesn't God heal everybody? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. It's always in God's power to heal. He's God. But it's not always God's purpose to heal. I mean, Paul, we just saw Paul, right? Three times he asked God to take this thorn from his side. But God said no. Uh, my nana, Mary J. Vargas, my mom's mom, was a godly woman, loved the Lord, and she got sick and was very sick, and we prayed for healing, but God didn't heal her. One of our beloved elders, Tony Gorilli, godly man, loved the Lord. He got sick, and we prayed, and we prayed for healing, but God didn't heal him. He passed away. Tom Rivera, a godly man, a Bible uh, study teacher, and uh, he was also the head of the men's ministry team. A godly man got sick, and we prayed for healing, but God didn't heal him. He passed away. And then my daddy, who I missed dearly, oh, we prayed for healing, that God would heal him, but God didn't, and my daddy passed away. But all of them, all of these that I'm talking about here, ultimately got their healing when they went up to be with Jesus. You see, when it comes to, to healing, God will answer in one of two ways. He will answer with supplying grace. Supplying grace is when God will heal you of your sickness. I mean, he will heal you of your sickness. And he will also answer with sustaining grace. Sustaining grace is when he doesn't heal you, but he sustains you. In other words, what he says to you is, my grace is sufficient. Now, Paul had the gift of healing, but he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Epaphroditus almost died while ministering to Paul. Timothy had a stomach problem. We know that, right? A stomach problem and, and frequent ailments. Paul asked God, remember? Paul asked God, how many times? Three times to remove this thorn from his side. And God said, no, but that his grace was sufficient for him. So I want you to follow me. That being said, I want you to follow me. God sometimes chooses not to remove certain afflictions from our lives, but he uses those afflictions, uses them as tools to strengthen us and to build us up and to be a testimony to others. Amen? So, so if you're sick, take the initiative and let the elders know. Call on the elders, and the elders will carry out the two functions. They will anoint you, and they will pray for you, and then leave the results in God's hands. That's why it says, in the name of the Lord, which appeals to God's will for the situation. If you got it, say got it. So pray when I'm suffering, pray when I'm sick. Number three is pray when I'm in sin. 
pray when I'm in sin. Look at verses 15b all the way through verse 16a. Verse 15b through 16a. And James writes, if he has sinned, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, listen to what he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now listen, church, James' focus is not just on physical healing, but also on spiritual healing. Spiritual healing. The word confess there means to confess or admit openly or fully. Uh, confess comes from three Greek words, to say, same, and out. To say, same, and out. The idea is to speak out about something you agree is wrong. Again, the idea is to speak out about something you agree is wrong. So, so we experience spiritual healing as we confess our sins. Listen, confession of sins is made so that integrity and righteousness is restored in our lives. Now, now listen, when we sin against someone, we should be prompt, I mean prompt, to confess a sin to the person we have wronged. Friends, we, we as believers, we shouldn't hold grudges against each other. Instead, listen now, instead, we should maintain ourselves in fellowship with others through confession and prayer. You ever notice when we confess, something begins to happen? Something awesome begins to happen. Why? Because revealing is the beginning of healing. Someone said, you will find rest when you confess. And that is so true. Now, confessing our sins to one another, to one another promotes three things, okay? Confessing our sins to one another promotes three things. Write this down. It promotes, here we go, community. Write that down, say that, community. We are a community of believers in the church. That's what we are, friends, helping one another, right? Uh, assisting one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. And this is one of the greatest benefits of being part of the body of Christ. We need community. I, I don't know about you, but I need community, friends. And that's why the stay-in-place ordinance has been so difficult for us because we were created for community not confinement, not confinement. We need each other. Confessing, this is now, confessing our sin promotes community. You see, and I want you to get this. It is sin that withdraws us, withdraws us from community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and it's powerful what he said. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly isolation. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and allows the free flow of God's grace in the community. That is so awesome. I love that. So it promotes community it also promotes humility. Humility, write that down. It promotes humility. Confessing our sins, listen now, confessing our sin means that we have humbled ourselves to admit, to admit that we have, in fact, sinned. You see, it, it's pride, say pride, it's pride that keeps us from confessing our sin. And friends, we will either excuse it, deny it, or hide it. 
So, so we must humble ourselves, humble ourselves and confess it. So it promotes community. It promotes humility. The third thing it promotes is accountability. Write that down, accountability. It promotes accountability. It keeps us accountable. It keeps us accountable. I don't know about you, friends, but I need accountability. We all need accountability. And that's the wonderful thing about confessing our sins. It promotes those three wonderful things. Now we're going to look at the example of prayer, the example of prayer. But before we get into the first point of that, look at verse 17a with me, verse 17a with me. Uh, James writes, Elijah, Elijah was a man just like us. So in other words, he wasn't perfect. Elijah wasn't perfect. He was the subject to the same weaknesses as us. He was liable to be afflicted in, this, in, in a similar manner as us. He dealt with the same passions and the same infirmities that we do. And he, listen now, he, he had times of faith and, and times of failing. He had times of, of selflessness and times of selfishness. He dealt, he dealt with doubt, with depression, depression, excuse me, and discouragement. And I'm sure that we all can identify and relate to that, right? He was just like us. He was human. He was just a man that, that served God. And his power and influence were given by God, not human ability. And you see, Elijah, Elijah's victories were not one through his ability to stay strong, but in praying, say praying, to God who was able and willing to deliver. And some of you think that you have to be a spiritual giant, a pastor, or a leader in order to pray. No, just pray. Elijah was just a man like you and I. And that's, that was James' point. Hey, he was just a man like you and I. So point number one is this. Pray righteously. This is the example of prayer. Pray righteously. Write that down. Pray righteously. Look at verse 16b with me. Okay, verse 16b. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. Say, say righteous man. Say, say righteous man. Now listen, as we come to Jesus, we are personally, or excuse me, positionally, positionally, Righteous. We are positionally righteous. In other words, we're, we're justified. But here James is not talking about positional righteousness. He, he's talking about being righteous in practice. Righteous in practice. He's talking about a right living believer. He emphasizes the need for upright living and an unhindered fellowship with God. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's emphasizing. Now listen, our conduct, our way of living gives value to our praying. I'm going to say it again. Our conduct, our way of living gives value to our praying. Now follow me, and I want you to get this, because this is awesome. The stream of praying cannot rise higher than the fountain of living. I'm going to say it again. The stream of praying cannot rise higher than the fountain of living. Say amen to that. So James is talking about someone who, who recognizes that his or her righteousness resides in Jesus and whose personal walk is consistent, say that, consistent with the righteousness that he or she has in Jesus. Hey, if you want your prayers, if you want your prayers to be effective, then, then be clean, then, then live right. God hears the cries of the righteous. That's what James is saying. Psalm 34, 15. 
This is the verse of, of our church, Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, the righteous. Now, now get this. We can do a lot of things with sin in our lives. We can do a lot of things with sin in our lives, but prayer is not one of them. Prayer is not one of them. Sin in our lives will block our prayers. It will keep our prayers from God's ears. Our hearts, our hearts, listen now, must be pure before God if we desire to have our petitions heard and granted. So if we're not living right, if we don't deal with our sin, then why in the world should we expect God to pay attention to our prayers? I want you to write these scriptures down, Psalm 66, 18. If you're still with me, say amen, Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 2. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Proverbs 28.13a, Proverbs 28.13a says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper. Wow, I'm going to read that again. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. Friends, we cannot talk to God strongly if we have not lived for God strongly. Now, if you're safe, say amen. I want to say this. Power in prayer doesn't come from the length of our prayers or from the particular words that we use. Power in prayer, say that, power in prayer comes from a righteous walk before the living God. Look at the text. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Say, say effective. It has the idea of, of praying earnestly, uh, with, uh, praying fervently. It's, it's with energy and, and enthusiasm. It isn't offered in a flippant or nonchalant way, but with, with great passion, passion, desiring God to move on, on, a, on a certain situation. The King James says it like this, the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Availeth much. Availeth means strength, ability, and power. It reveals these prayers have value. Bishop Hall said this, It is not the arithmetic of our prayers, how many they are, nor the rhetoric of our prayers, how eloquent they be, nor the geometry of our prayers, how long they be, nor the music of our prayers, how sweet our voice may be, nor the method of our prayers, how orderly they may be, nor even the theology of our prayers, how good the doctrine may be which God cares for. Fervency, he says, fervency of spirit is that which availeth much. It's awesome. I love that. So we are to pray righteously. Number two is pray earnestly. Write that down, say that. Pray earnestly. Pray righteously, pray earnestly. Look at verse 17b, 17b. He prayed earnestly. Speaking of Elijah, he prayed earnestly. So, so he prayed with an earnest effort. It was passionate and sincere. Listen, 
God knows when we're serious. God knows when we're serious. He knows whether we mean business or not when we're praying. Listen, friends, if what you're praying about is that important to you, if it is, then you'll be earnest in your prayers. You'll be committed and consistent in your petitions to God. Elijah didn't give up on the situation. He didn't put his petitions on, on, on the shelf for a season. He prayed earnestly, earnestly, which brings us to uh, the next point. Point number three is pray specifically. Write that down, pray specifically. Look at verses 17b through verse 18. Verse 17b through verse 18. He, Elijah, prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Verse 18, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So obviously he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed that it would rain, right? And it rained for three and it rained uh, for, um, and it rained again on the earth to produce its crops. Listen, we need to be specific in our prayers to God. Got it? We need to be specific in our prayers to God. Okay, and, and I believe that when we're specific in our prayers to God, it pleases God when we do that. Now, now, what are you praying for right now? What are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Whatever you're praying for, and whoever you're praying for, be specific. Again, I believe it blesses the heart of God. It pleases God when we're specific in our prayers to Him. So pray righteously, pray earnestly, pray specifically. And number four, the last point is pray believing. Write that down. Say that. Pray. I love this. Pray believing. So we're going to go back to chapter one now, okay? We're going to go back to chapter one, verse 6a. Remember that? Remember that? Chapter one, verse 6a. And James writes, but when he asks, he must what? Believe. Believe and not doubt. But when he asks, he must believe. Say believe and not doubt. J James is telling us as we pray to have what? Faith, to trust, to believe God. Hebrews 11.6 Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe. There it is, believe. Say that, believe. That he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So when we ask, we ask with, with confidence, with trust, with, with faith. We ask believing that he hears us. Believing that he, listen now, that he is faithful in his character and that he is trustworthy in what he promises to do in my life and in your life. We're believing, we're trusting him to do what we have asked according, listen now, according to the perfections of his will. Back to 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. I read this to you earlier. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Church, we need to come before God with our need in believing that He can and will deal with it in a way that is best for us. I love that. That's best for us. It's believing, trusting that His way, not my way, not your way, that His way is best. So pray. Pray. If there's a need, God will meet it. Pray. 
If there's a fear, God will replace it. Pray. If there's a burden, God will lift it. Pray. If there's a need for someone to be saved, God will deal with them. Pray. If there's a sin, God will forgive it. Pray. Pray. So as we wrap this up, in light of all that we've learned, our prayer life, listen now, is a reflection of our spiritual maturity. I'm going to say it again. Our prayer life is a reflection of our spiritual maturity. It tells us how in fellowship we are with God. It tells us how willing, say willing, we are to trust Him to handle the circumstances in our lives. And this is why, friends, we always need to keep the sovereignty, I love that word, the sovereignty of God in mind. So when it seems as if our prayers are not answered or when we expected a different outcome, we need to praise God in the things we do understand and trust Him in situations when we don't understand. You see, He sees the big picture. He sees it all, friends, and has a much bigger plan than you and I can ever imagine. So pray. We got to pray. We got to pray more, right? We got to pray. Pray when we're suffering. Pray when we're sick. Pray when we're in sin. Pray. Pray righteously. Pray earnestly. Pray specifically. Pray believing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and, and praise you for blessing us with the highest, Lord, and, great, and greatest privilege of prayer. And might we never take it for granted. I pray, Lord, that we daily would find ourselves before you, drawing near to you, Lord, on our knees, seeking you, trusting your will in and for our lives. Because, Lord, you know what's best for us. Your way, Lord, is the best way. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. I love you. I miss you all so much. See you next week.